This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. By mid-September, most students have returned to campuses all over the country and the world. The beginning of a new school year can be an exciting time full of promise and hope for the future. College students in particular may be anticipating not just a new school term, but even a new way of life. Many may be living away from home for the very first time, experiencing more freedom away from their parents, meeting new people, and making new friends. Whether living in a dorm or sharing an off-campus apartment with roommates, many first-year college students enjoy their first time living as independent adults. Lola Martinez was living 1,500 miles away from her hometown of Las Cruces, New Mexico, attending college in Indiana in the spring of 2008. She was well-liked by her teachers and classmates, got along well with her roommates, had landed a part-time job she enjoyed, and had even found new love. But an unusual set of circumstances led to a tense living situation that tragically would turn deadly. This is the first episode in the series, Crimes on Campus, The Murder of Lola Martinez. Yet Nicole Martinez was born on September 22, 1985, in Silver City, New Mexico. She came from a large, close-knit family and was the only child of Gabriel and Geraldine Martinez. Liette, who changed her name to Lola because she became tired of people mispronouncing her unusual first name, was truly the apple of her parents' eyes. She was energetic and fun and exuded confidence and determination in everything she set her mind to. She attended Vista Middle School and then Mayfield High School in Las Cruces, New Mexico, graduating in 2004. Lola was creative and aspired to have a career in graphic design. She attended New Mexico State University in her freshman year and became a member of the Digital Art Club. To pursue a graphic design major, she applied to be part of a student exchange program at Indiana Purdue University in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She was accepted and moved 1,500 miles north of her hometown in August 2007 to begin her sophomore year at IPFW. The university had a unique feature for its students who chose to live on campus. The residence halls were different from the usual dorm-like living accommodations typical of most college campuses. IPFW's water-filled residence halls were designed as apartment living, providing students with more space and privacy. Typically, four students shared the apartment's common areas, living room, kitchen, etc., but each had their own bedroom. Each of the nine buildings that made up the water-filled residence halls could only be accessed from the outside by scanning a key fob at the front door of the building, as well as a keyed entry into each apartment. Students felt safe on campus with these added protections, as well as 24-hour-a-day campus security on patrol. When Lola Martinez moved into a fourth-floor apartment in Building H in the fall of 2007, she quickly made friends with her three roommates, Shasta Meyer, Mandy Hake, and Tanzania Morris. The four girls were assigned to apartment number 460. There were frequent visitors to the apartment during any given week. Friends, classmates, and partners would drop in to hang out, study, or sometimes watch movies, one of Lola's favorite pastimes. A few months after the semester began, Lola was hired at a local Mexican restaurant, Bandito's. There, she met Brandon York, and they became friends and later began dating. 
Of course, family members would sometimes come to visit as well. In early April of 2008, Tanzania told the other girls that her mother, Tina, was coming to visit for a couple of days. Her roommates welcomed Tanzania's mother warmly. But Tina Morris was a little different from what they expected. Tanzania herself was serious, quiet, and reserved. Tina was more outspoken and assertive, and seemed a bit immature for her age of 36. It sometimes felt like Tanzania was the adult and Tina the child, rather than the other way around. Tina Morris was also a bit clingy when it came to her daughter. From the time she set foot in the apartment, she followed Tanzania around and joined in on whatever she was doing. Even when Tanzania had to leave the apartment to attend classes, Tina didn't find something else to do on her own, but remained in the apartment waiting for her daughter to return. The only time she seemed to leave the apartment alone was to go outside to smoke, which she did often. Tanzania's mother's two-day visit dragged on for a week, and then two. Tina was sleeping on the couch in the living room, making things cramped and awkward for the other three girls. They had to navigate around their house guests, who by now had overstayed her welcome. Tanzania also seemed tense around her mother. She probably sensed that the other girls were getting tired of Tina's constant presence, but it may have been difficult to tell her that it was time to leave. What her roommates didn't know at that time was that Tina and Tanzania were not particularly close. In fact, Tina had just recently returned to her daughter's life. Tanzania had largely been raised by other family members. Her mother had not been a stable influence in her life. Tina Morris had a record for petty crimes like theft, and in the late 1990s, she had also been convicted of misdemeanor criminal recklessness. But the sentence was suspended after she agreed to a psychological assessment and mandated counseling. A year before re-entering Tanzania's life, Tina was charged with theft of checks and credit cards. So Tanzania Morris had a complicated situation on her hands when her mother showed up asking to visit. On the one hand, it was an awkward situation when Tina extended her visit and didn't appear to have plans to leave anytime soon. But on the other hand, Tanzania had missed having her mother in her life as she grew up. What if she told her it was time to end the visit and her mother disappeared from her life once more? But there was no doubt that the tension inside the apartment between the roommates was increasing. Finally, during week two of Tina's visit, Lola Martinez and Shasta Meyer met to discuss what should be done about their unwanted guest. They decided they needed to bring the subject up to Tanzania and tell her that it was time to ask her mother to leave the apartment. Not long afterward, they carefully brought up the topic with her. Tanzania was apologetic, but she assured them that her mom had already purchased a bus ticket and would be leaving any time now. The girls left it at that. On Thursday, April 17, 2008, Tina Morris had already been sleeping on the couch at the shared apartment for two weeks. Initially, she was supposed to stay only a couple of days, and now the situation had become tense and awkward. The roommates may or may not have been aware of the fact that the university had a policy regarding guests. No overnight guests of the opposite sex were allowed at all, and same-sex guests were only allowed to stay for a maximum of 72 hours. On Thursday night, Lola invited the girls to meet her in the living room for a movie night. They would periodically do this with someone picking a movie and another girl making the popcorn. It was just a fun way to unwind after a long week of classes and hectic schedules. Roommate Mandy Hake declined to join in since she was leaving for the weekend to visit her boyfriend in Michigan. Shasta also begged off because she had an early morning class the next day and decided to turn in early. 
That left only Lola and Tanzania. And Tanzania's mother, of course. So at about 10 p.m., the three of them gathered in the living room, and Lola started the movie. Tanzania and Tina were chatting during the movie, and Lola became a little annoyed. Then Tanzania started asking questions about what was happening in the movie. Now Lola got a little bit more irritated. If she'd been paying attention instead of talking, she would have been able to follow the plot, she thought. Now Lola was distracted by her roommate's continuous questions. Finally, Lola snapped and told Tanzania, why don't you be quiet and just watch the movie? Tanzania stopped talking, but Tina bristled, not liking the way Lola spoke to her daughter. It's unclear whether Tina had words with Lola that night or simply gave her a dirty look. What we do know is that by 11.30 that night, Lola left the apartment to get away from the rising tension. She called her boyfriend Brandon, and he invited her over to his place. She arrived shortly before midnight and explained what had happened at home. He listened and offered his advice to let things cool down and then have a conversation with her roommates to establish rules about house guests. After speaking with Brandon, Lola felt better and got ready to head back to her apartment at about 1.30 a.m. They kissed each other goodbye, and Lola gave him one last smile through her car window before driving off. Brandon would later be haunted by the thought that if he just asked her to stay over, perhaps Lola would still be alive. The next morning, Shasta left the apartment at 9.30 for her class. She returned two hours later, letting herself into the apartment with her key. She walked straight to her bedroom and didn't see anyone else at home. A few minutes later, she walked to the kitchen pantry when something caught her eye. On the side of the cabinet on the corner of the kitchen wall was a large blood smear. Shasta wasn't sure what she was seeing for a moment, but then was overcome with a feeling of overwhelming dread. She started calling out to her roommates to see if anyone was home. As she walked down the hallway towards the bedrooms, she saw more blood dripped on the floor and smeared on the walls. The majority was located near Lola's bedroom door. The door was slightly open, and Shasta peered into the room. Looking down, she saw Lola's feet near the open doorway. She called out, Lola, and then swung the door open wider. What she saw would be burned into her mind forever, giving her nightmares so bad she later wouldn't recall what she had actually seen and what was a flashback from one of these horrible nightmares. Blood drenched the area around Lola's head and shoulders. It had soaked the front of her clothing, and Lola lay still, face up to the ceiling. She wasn't moving and didn't respond to Shasta's cries. Shasta kept calling Lola's name repeatedly, and she reached down and attempted to shake her friend awake. There was no response. Panicked now, Shasta ran across the hall and pounded on the neighbor's door, yelling for them to call 911. She would later say she didn't know why she didn't just call 911 herself, but believed that she was in shock and couldn't think straight. She also had the anxious thought that she needed to get out of that apartment as quickly as possible. 911 was called, and officers and paramedics arrived and entered the apartment. They could detect no signs of life, and Lola was pronounced dead at the scene. Multiple stab wounds were found on her neck and shoulders. A t-shirt lay over her neck where the most lethal wounds were located. Investigators weren't sure if this was used as an attempt to slow the bleeding or merely to conceal the horrible injuries from view. Was the killer remorseful or ashamed of what they had done? It was a question that would have to remain unanswered for the time being. 
Lola was also found to have burns on her hands and arms. A pot was found lying nearby, and it was determined that she also had boiling water thrown at her. Lola had likely raised her hands in a defensive manner to deflect the hot water, causing most of the burns to be centered in that part of her body. Investigators theorized that the attack began in the kitchen and the boiling pot of water was used as a weapon to incapacitate the victim. Detectives walked through the crime scene and took photos of what they found. Blood was smeared on walls in the kitchen, bathroom, and hallway. The murder weapon was discovered not far from Lola's body. It was an 8-inch kitchen knife that had been used with so much force, the blade was bent at a 90-degree angle, and the handle was broken. Lola's car, a 2006 Mazda, was missing. Detectives began conducting interviews with Lola's roommates to try and piece together the events of the morning she was killed. A message was sent to all students on campus, alerting them that a body had been found in one of the residence halls. A couple of hours later, a second message was sent informing the students that the incident was being investigated by campus police as a homicide. It was the first time a murder was reported on campus in the 40-year history of the school. The rest of the day's classes were canceled. Two hours after Lola was discovered murdered, campus police contacted the Las Cruces, New Mexico Police Department. Officers from that department were given the grim task of informing Lola's family of her death. The worst day of the Martinez's lives began with a soft knock at the door. It's a visit no parent ever wants to receive. Shasta Meyer was the first witness interviewed as she had been unfortunate enough to be the one to discover Lola's body. She was still reeling from finding her friend dead and did her best to try and recall that morning's events as clearly as she could. Shasta left the apartment for a morning class just before 9.30 a.m. Lola, Tanzania Morris, and her mother Tina were still in the apartment at that time. She had returned to the apartment a little after 11.30 a.m. She was talking on her cell phone as she entered the front door and walked straight to her bedroom. She hadn't noticed anything at that time as she was distracted by the phone call. Just a few minutes later, she was tidying her room and went to the kitchen to return a bag of chips to the pantry. That is when she saw the blood smear on the kitchen wall and then discovered Lola. She ran for help about 15 minutes after returning to the apartment. Tanzania was located and also brought in for questioning. She reported exiting the apartment at 10 a.m., leaving her mother and Lola alone together. She didn't know where her mother was as she had been unable to reach her since. She was worried, as were the detectives. Was Tina Morris another victim? Had someone entered the apartment, killed Lola, and then taken Tina hostage in Lola's missing car? They had to think of every possible scenario, and Tina Morris's disappearance added another element to the puzzle they were trying to piece together. Tanzania and Shasta told investigators that Lola had been dating a guy named Brandon, who was a co-worker at the restaurant. They didn't know much about him or the relationship. Brandon received a visit from detectives, and he provided more information about what had occurred the night before Lola's murder. He told them that Lola had been upset when she called him on Thursday night. She said that Tanzania's mother had become angry with her for telling Tanzania to stop talking during the movie. The mood became tense, causing Lola to want to leave the apartment for a while, so she came to his house and they talked. The last time he'd seen Lola was when she left his place to return home at around 1.30 a.m. Investigators spoke with Tanzania again and asked about the exchange between her mother and Lola, something she had not mentioned during the first interview. Tanzania said that yes, Lola had snapped at her to be quiet, 
but she hadn't taken any offense to the comment. I do ask too many questions during movies, she admitted, saying it was something she always did and understood how it could be distracting. She hadn't thought much about it, but her mom did take offense. She continued to bring it up even after Lola had left the apartment, saying that her roommate shouldn't disrespect her that way. Tanzania told her mother to drop it. It was no big deal. They continued to try and locate Lola's car and Tina Morris. In the meantime, they began reviewing video footage from security cameras placed in and around the residence halls. Investigators wanted to verify the timelines witnesses had given them and also determine if anyone else had entered the apartment the morning Lola was attacked. Luckily, a security camera was positioned in the hallway just feet away from apartment 460's front door, and the comings and goings from Lola's apartment were clearly recorded. At 9.17 a.m., Tina Morris left the apartment. She returned just eight minutes later. Later, it was determined she had gone downstairs to smoke a cigarette, as this was prohibited inside the building. She was wearing an unzipped hooded sweatshirt and a dark-colored top. Both of her hands were visible. This detail will become important later. At 9.28 a.m., Shasta exited the apartment with her book bag. This verified her claim that she was the first to leave the apartment to attend a class. At 10.02 a.m., Tanzania also left the apartment, verifying the report of her schedule that morning as well. This left just Tina Morris and Lola in the apartment alone together, as the fourth roommate, Mandy Hake, was out of town. At 10.25 a.m., Tina Morris left the apartment for the second time. In this video, she is seen wearing a different top, and her left hand is concealed inside her jacket pocket. Another camera records her next movements as she waits for the elevator located down the hallway. She seems impatient, repeatedly pushing the elevator button and looking up and down the hallway. Her hand is still in her jacket pocket, and she never removes it. A minute or so later, she gets up waiting for the elevator to arrive and takes the stairs instead. No other person is seen coming or going from apartment 460 until Shasta returns at 11.38 a.m. At 11.53, Shasta is seen running out of the apartment with a look of panic on her face and she begins banging on the door across the hall. Tina Morris was now the prime suspect in Lola Martinez's murder, and a be on the lookout was issued to locate her for questioning. Lola Martinez was found stabbed to death in her own bedroom on Friday, April 18th. After a short investigation, her roommate's mother, who'd been a guest in her home, was considered the prime suspect in her killing. Tanzania, at first, had been concerned for her mom's safety when she went missing the same day her roommate was found dead. She had repeatedly tried to reach her on her cell phone, but had received no answer. Now she placed another call to Tina. Shaken by what she'd been told about her mother's movements on the morning of the murder, she left her a message. Mom, please tell me you didn't have anything to do with this. If you know anything, you need to contact the police. They're looking for you and need you to answer some questions. On Sunday morning, April 20th, campus police received a phone call from Tina Morris. She said she heard they were looking for her and gave them her location. She was in Indianapolis, two hours away from Fort Wayne. She was sitting in a park and said she would wait for them to arrive. She also told them that she'd driven Lola's car there and it was parked on the street in front of the park. Investigators made the drive to Indianapolis and found Tina sitting exactly where she told them she'd be. 
Campus Police Sergeant Kenneth Clement barely had time to sit down next to her when she admitted that she'd killed Lola. She was arrested and taken back to Fort Wayne for questioning. In her first version of the story, Tina said that she'd confronted Lola about, quote, saying smart stuff to her daughter. She said Lola had spoken disrespectfully to her daughter, and she couldn't let it go. The next morning, they'd had words in the kitchen after everyone had left the apartment. Tina claimed that Lola had grabbed a knife off the kitchen counter and, quote, came at me. They'd struggled over the knife, and Tina said she had stabbed her in self-defense. Sergeant Clement looked Tina in the eye and said, that's not what happened, Tina. You and I both know that's not true. Tina broke down in tears and admitted that Lola had never attacked her. She had become angry and confronted Lola. Her temper went out of control and she grabbed the boiling pot of water and threw it at her. Lola tried to run and Tina grabbed the knife and struck her with it. Bleeding, Lola ran to her bedroom and tried to barricade herself inside, but Tina was right behind her. She pushed her way into the bedroom and continued stabbing her repeatedly. It all happened so fast, Tina said. Tina's left hand had a deep cut on her first finger, which was her only injury. The detective recognized the wound as when a person would receive, when a knife becomes slick from blood and the attacker's hand slides down and is cut on the blade. Her hand was still bleeding when she left the apartment, so she kept it concealed in case she ran into anyone in the hallway. She'd changed her shirt, which had blood spatter. With no transportation of her own, she'd grabbed Lola's keys and taken her car to get away. Tina Morris was charged with murder, felony murder, robbery, and auto theft, and was held without bond. Her trial was set for September 2008. Two months before the trial date, however, Tina Morris entered a plea of insanity. The judge ordered a psychiatric evaluation to be conducted. On August 20, 2008, on the advice of her counsel, Tina Morris entered a guilty plea on the murder charge. Lola's family had agreed to allow her to plead guilty in exchange for the auto theft, robbery, and other charges being dismissed. We didn't want to have to go to trial. We didn't want to hear the graphic details of what transpired in that dorm room. We didn't want to go through that, Lola's mother Geraldine said. Tina Morris's attorney advised her that an insanity defense would be difficult to prove. Tina's decision to take Lola's car and drive it to Indianapolis, then using Lola's credit cards, made the insanity defense difficult, if not impossible, to prove, defense attorney Tony Churchward said. On September 19, 2008, Tina Morris was sentenced to 60 years in prison. She is serving her sentence at the Rockville Correctional Facility. Her first chance at parole is not until 2036. The Martinez family are faithful Catholics and believe in forgiveness. At the sentencing hearing, Geraldine Martinez spoke directly to her daughter's killer. Tina, we do not hate you, she said, but we ask you, why? We cannot forgive you for the pain you have caused our family and your daughter, Tanzania. Why indeed? Could Tina's murderous response to a single comment really have been the catalyst for such a violent attack? It seems hard to believe. When I first learned about this case, 
My initial impression was that Tina Morris must be a helicopter mom. The definition of a parent who is always hovering, overprotecting their child, and feel like they need to fight all their battles for them. But then I learned that she was a very inconsistent presence in Tanzania's life, so this theory didn't hold much water. Unless we decide that Tina may have been trying to make up for lost time by becoming too involved in her daughter's life after a long period of absence. Maybe Tina Morris was suffering from some form of mental illness or a personality disorder that contributed to this tragic event. Her charge for criminal mischief doesn't clarify much, but could at least indicate that she is lacking in impulse control. Or maybe Tina Morris is just one of those people who has a perpetual chip on her shoulder and is hypersensitive to any type of perceived criticism. In either case, her response was completely over the top and unjustified. Her violent reaction is something that cannot be explained with any degree of reason. The only thing we know for certain is that she committed a brutal and violent act that ended a young girl's life with almost no provocation or warning. Your heart does indeed go out to Lola's family for their loss, as well as for the trauma suffered by her roommates, friends, and Tanzania, who must feel some guilt for allowing her mother into their home. Of course, this tragedy was something she could never have seen coming, and one for which she bears no responsibility. She is also a victim of her mother's terrible act. As a response to Lola's murder, Indiana Purdue University reevaluated its policies and enforcement regarding overnight guests. They also looked at adding more resident advisors, adding monitors to the entrance of each building, and increased security patrols by campus police. The Liette Martinez Memorial Scholarship was established in 2009 to be awarded to a university student. Lola's grandmother, Becky Estrada, an employee of Western New Mexico University, helped establish the scholarships at WNMU, New Mexico State University, Donna Anna Community College, and Purdue University. The scholarship is awarded to juniors and seniors who have achieved a 3.0 grade point average or higher. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.